0: as nurses we aren't really given those skills you know we're given those skills to be autonomous in our respected setting in the er or icu but when it comes to like showing up on the side of a highway and knowing where to start and what information to get and also how to be quick about it all we're not really prepared for that unless we seek those opportunities to prepare
1: Ooh, i ourselves.
2: gotta go hey, i've been working told them please don't hit my phone i'm in my zone bro just leave me alone hey, was on the road but I why i'm coming home now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast, see I did it for me, now my old friends calling told them nothing's for free, told me time is money, dog. that's why I paid on my fees, I was starving for this game, now my fan, they can't eat.
1: Hey everyone, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show, here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time, if you find value in the show, please, and review the show, it would mean absolutely everything to us. CupofNurses.com for the latest updates, merch releases, and show notes. Any, everything is on there. For our Lifestyle Podcast, you can check out Warriors.com.
2: In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Madison Vauder. Madison is a flight nurse with a background in ICU, trauma, and ER. We talk about what a flight nurse does, how to become one, and how to build confidence as a nurse. Thank you, Matt, for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself?
0: Yeah, um thank you for having me first off. I'm pumped to be here and talking about nursing and flight nursing in general. I love it. but um I am currently a flight nurse. My name is Madison Bodder. I have about four years of experience with nursing. Um, I actually i originally didn't go to school for nursing because I couldn't get into nursing school originally, um, believe it or not, but I always knew I wanted to be a flight nurse. But um, I got a degree in uh, public health, a bachelor's of science in public health with a pre-nursing specialization. So I got all the prereqs done and then I applied to a accelerated nursing program. So I got into that. It was one year of just intense BSN, two years worth of schooling into one year. Um, And straight out of that, I started doing everything I could to get the qualifications under my belt for flight nursing because those are pretty specific and uh, so for four years i spent um, working in a level one trauma center on the trauma floor and then that was for one year and then an er for three years and uh, as soon as i met the minimum qualifications for flight nursing i applied and so here i am i'm a little over a year into that and i love it and i never want to change careers as of now so
2: and what what pulled you into into flight nursing? That's something that was always on your on your radar. I know you mentioned that you didn't want to go into initially, but but what was the main attraction of it? Was it like the rush? Was it the thrill? Was it getting to work in a helicopter?
0: I think it was the mix of I when I was in high school, I was really intrigued by um, like firefighting and, and paramedicine. I really wanted to be. I love the first responder aspect of things. Uh, it just that attracted me a lot. Um, but and so I actually so I did a job shadow in an ER shadowing more of the process with uh the EMS squad, like when they'd come into the ER and watch that process, but I actually got to see some flight crews bring in really critical patients. And so the mixture of pre-hospital care and the the more like critical care aspect of nursing combined seeing that in action. When I was, I think I was like fourteen. When I was shadowing all this, I was like, "That's what I want to do." I, I get a mix of both pre-hospital knowledge, and then I also get to have this critical care aspect that that I get out of nursing. So that's that's when I the, the light bulb clicked on.
1: And as far as a flight nurse, how is your routine? I know if you work regularly in a hospital, you're doing three twelves, either working days or nights. How does it work for flight nursing?
0: So everywhere you go, like regionally, it's different. Um, where I'm at, we I'm actually afloat for my program. Um, so I work two twenty-fours a week, um, whether or not it's like 24 on, 24 off and 24 back on. Um, that's how the normal schedule is. I'm a little spread out though, because I'm afloat, but uh, it's two twenty-fours a week. Um, other programs though, like in um, my last job I flew in Iowa, um, Nebraska area, and that's a little more of a, a rural location. And so the rural locations, it's hard to get people that live in those small towns. Um, so you'll work more days on, then you'll have more days off. So it encourages people to commute to the rural bases. So I, I used to work, it was like 324s and a 12, and then I'd have a week off. Um, now it's more, I don't have as many days off with my current schedule but it doesn't bug me too much because I work in town. So it's easier.
2: And then as a, as a flight nurse, do you work in just a helicopter or do you work in like a, a, an an airplane? I know there's different types of flight nursing. So what have, what have you've done?
0: So my program, my current program, we have um, a helicopter, we have a fixed wing airplane, and then on bad weather days, we do ground runs. So we have a critical care ground unit. Um, My previous program, we were strictly helicopter. um, So That was always hard when you'd have bad weather days because you'd get a call and you'd have to just flat out turn it down. And out here, even if we have bad weather days, uh, we are not turning down the patient care. We're turning down the flight, but we'll go by ground to get that patient or we'll go by fixed wing in the airplane if that's feasible. So I like the mix of all three that I have right now for sure.
1: And what are responsibilities maybe during downtime? I know, for example, firefighters, they... I don't know what they do in a firehouse, but they maintenance the truck or the engine or whatever. So what are the responsibilities when you don't have like a high acuity patient load?
0: Yeah, so it's it's pretty similar to the the fire lifestyle. My husband's actually a firefighter. And so he uh, it's funny, our, our mornings start pretty similar where we'll come into work and we have to check our, our individual rigs. So my rig is the aircraft. So I'll come into work and we'll check our, our aircraft to make sure we have enough oxygen. We'll check all of our equipment. We'll go through all our bags, um, make sure that nothing's expired, um, make sure everything's functional, uh, make sure batteries are charged on um, our, our intubation stuff, on our pumps. Our ventilator will do like a, a check on all everything that we might have to use. We make sure that it's functioning properly. Um, and if it's not, we'll troubleshoot it. We'll restock things. Um, we will also like... We get involved with the aviation side of things with our pilots, and so we're learning about weather. We're talking about weather all day. We're talking about um, different aspects of of just what to expect if we get a call. Um, and we're learning about. And if you don't know a ton about like the weather aspect of things, you're learning about it from your pilots because it's important when they tell you. Like, look, we'll talk about like tonight. There's a two degree dew point spread, and that's a specific number that that indicates whether or not it might get foggy and so um, we're learning about what that means because that affects whether we want to accept a flight or not if we feel safe and so we're learning a lot about safety um, in addition to checking our our materials that we're using throughout the day so there's a lot of things that you can always learn work on study while you're at work Um, and then we're also we have a training room so if we're not on a call we have our training room at our disposal where we can practice innovations and this this dummy has the ability to you can have a contaminated airway and it it throws up coffee grounds so you can practice salad technique so um and we have a gym so we have a lot of things at our disposal
2: that's super cool and then when you're when you're on the aircraft what does your team consist of is there like a pa or a physician and there's pilots do you have access to like respiratory therapists what's like the the, the team look like it sounds like it's a combination of icu and, and er and, and trauma and you're, you're doing all of it are you doing it all by yourself or, or how does that look like
0: so one another i mean every program once again is different my current program is uh we have nurses we have paramedics and then we have respiratory therapists and at my previous program and, and majority of programs are just nurse paramedic um but mine you always have to have a nurse on the aircraft. Um, in some situations, you can have a medic RT or medic medic, but they can only take scene calls at my program. Uh, but as far as um, staffing goes, and that, that, that happens like if a nurse calls in sick and there's only two medics or a nurse or a medic and an RT on, they can only accept scene calls for the day. But they'll staff the aircraft with a nurse and a medic or a nurse and an RT. And, um, yeah, we, and our, our roles, our scope of practice, when it comes to being in the air, they're the same We're we're no different than each other. You know, we, it's not like one person is in charge over the other, um, our scope of practice, the things that we can do while we're taking care of a patient are the exact same. Um, obviously I looked to my RTs to work with the ventilator. I, I, we're all trained on the ventilator, but the RTs, we learned a lot from them because that's their thing, but they can do everything a nurse can do and we can do everything they can do.
2: So then, for example, if it just, you went an RT, is an RT the one intubating or, or how, how does the role switch a little bit?
0: Either or, um, you know, we, we always, depending on who you work with, most crews, you have your set partner. I, I'm unique where I'm afloat, so I always have a different partner. And so with, when you have a set partner, you guys kind of, you know, your flow. Like if one person's like, dude, I'm so tired of intubating, like you get these, this, this hitch. But um, with my, my lifestyle being afloat, I always talk with whoever my partner is and I tell them like, Hey, I haven't had an intubation in a while. If we get one today, can I do it? Or if it's like, uh, if it seems like a difficult airway, I'll like, I'll let you and I talk about it. And I, I prefer you to take over. If it's a difficult one, you know, cause the RTs have more experience with that. And so do medics. Um, we'll talk about kind of our roles and our, our pregame, especially when we get a call. Um, we get that like quick brief report before we take the call. We'll kind of go over, okay, um, I'll start this, you start that. If this happens, um, I'm okay with doing this, or I prefer you doing this. So a lot of communication to discuss just what our game plan is.
1: And as far as like orders, since there's no physician on board, are you communicating with somebody in real time for orders? Is there like a set protocol that you follow just like paramedics and you arrive, the patient arrives to the hospital and everything gets taken over?
0: Yeah. So similar to paramedics, we have a, a protocol book. Um, we do have a physician on call at all times. You can call our medical director whenever we have a question about something. Um, the protocols, you know, it's, it's really a a big gray area for nurses. You know, as nurses, we're used to always having the doctor right there at our disposal. And we know our protocols and we know what's in our scope, like working in the ER. I knew what I was able to do and I knew what I wasn't able to do. And here you have these set protocols that tell you what you should be doing for your patient but it's still not it's never never does a patient actually perfectly fit into those those categories when it comes to like a decision making process so there's this big gray area where you have to use your critical thinking skills and you have to use your judgment as a critical care provider and as long as you can justify that you have the the freedom to to act on that so like for example let's say um I had a patient one time that they had a, a head injury and I was concerned that they were seizing. Well, I had already given them benzos. I technically, per my protocol, you have to meet a certain criteria to give Kepra, but I could justify starting a Kepra infusion, whether it was prophylactic or was treating a seizure that I was actually witnessing. So we can, we can justify our actions. Um, and if you ever have a question, if you don't feel comfortable justifying an action, that's not perfectly, Per per word for word, you can call your medical director in the air and on the ground. Um, you can call them anytime.
2: Can you give us like a description of how your workflow goes? So, for example, you, know, you show up to work, you get assigned. Then, let's just say an emergency comes up. Do you get like a quick debriefing on the plane, or do you get it as you're boarding the plane? And then, did you guys yeah. load the equipment? what is like a like let's say you get called in for 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 something happening? How does your workflow look?
0: Um, so we'll get a we'll get a call and we'll hop out of bed or stop what we're doing and we'll get together with the pilot our partner and we'll kind of first assess weather and we'll make sure like is weather good at our destination um, is it going to be okay coming back is there anything that we could run into that poses any risk and we'll discuss if we're all comfortable taking the flight and if we are um, we'll communicate that back to our dispatch and we'll accept it. And at that point, they give us our patient info because they don't want to give you any information that might sway you into thinking like, well, it's, you know, the weather might not be good, but it's a baby. Like we, we want to get the, we want to help this baby. Like they don't want to give you any information that might make you make a decision that isn't the safest decision. So once we accept the flight, we'll get our patient info. And then we start, we start moving. Um, our pilot will go out, get the aircraft ready um me and my partner will get our drugs we'll get um if it's a scene call we'll get our, our scene we call them bras they have just like a ton of stuff to start IVs have tourniquets um decompression needles so we'll grab whatever supplies we need for that call and we'll start um kind of talking through our game plan I like to call it like the pregame um of when we get on the scene I'll go in this the side door you go in the back door if it's an IFT um we'll we'll discuss more in route but uh, kind of cool go with our game plan, we get in the air, we get all patient weight. And uh, I always my personal thing that I like doing is I calculate all my drug doses for RSI. Um, so I'll calculate uh, every drug that um, I might need to give during the, the care of this patient. So that I have it there on me. So I don't have to try and do math in the air, because we're already going to do math in the air when we're mixing drugs, So you mix all of our own drugs. So I get all my doses out. Um, and that's pretty much the main thing that I want to get done before we're at the patient, um, those emergency RSI meds. Um, and then after that, we, we show up on the scene and, and we'll take all of our bags out that we need, um, and start doing patient care and see what we have.
1: Are most of your calls like uh, scene calls where you're maybe me, me picturing these events would be you landing on a highway or something. There's a car crash and you're troubleshooting is, or is it mostly scenes like that? Or are you picking up patients at hospitals and doing transport runs?
0: It's a good mix of both uh, where I'm at currently we're in, we're surrounded by a lot of rural areas that are surrounded by mountainous regions. So if they have something critical, um, it's going to take a long time to get them to the resources that they need. So, we're flying if it's a a scene call um depending on the town some towns we fly to a lot um like they have a large population of people that um maybe are they have a lot of cardiovascular problems so we respond to this community a lot for STEMI STEMI calls and so if we have a good relationship with this community we've been there a lot they'll develop an LZ that we have like pre-decided with them like if we go to your town we're going to land on like one town it's it's a stretch of highway that we land on they set up they've closed the highway and they set up an lz there because that's the safest spot for us to land or other towns um they'll have like a set parking lot like if they have a big church that um it only is has people on the weekends you know that's our set lz on weekdays so it just varies from town to town if it's a car accident yeah we're landing as close on scene as we can if it's somewhere where it's on like a a very mountainous highway where there's no way that we can land. They'll meet us wherever the, the closest spot is like, they'll tell us where they want to set up an LZ. We'll take a look at it from above. And if it looks good, we'll go there. If it doesn't look good, then we'll tell them like, Hey, I, we're not comfortable with this. Like we see power lines or um, there's a slope. We don't feel comfortable with this. And since we're in the air, we can kind of tell them like, Hey, I think there's somewhere like down the highway. We can meet you. That might be a little safer. So everywhere's different. And with, um, hospital calls, we do a lot of interfacility transfers as well, where we're picking up a patient from a smaller hospital that doesn't have the surgical services that a patient needs. And we're flying them, whether it's to the trauma center that's across the state or just to the, the closest center that has a STEMI capable facility. Um, we'll, we'll fly them there. So it's, it's always different. We never know what you're going to
2: get. Do you have like a favorite type of case or some of the that you prefer to respond to like maybe like a trauma one or do you prefer like the stemi cases does something uh, give you more of a rush than, than others
0: I love my traumas I spent three years in a level one trauma center that was like a knife and gun club where we just had it was in the very very populated metropolitan area where we just got a lot of really serious traumas and so that's that's my bread and butter I, I love I love taking care of those patients it's it's one of those areas that I I wouldn't say that it's like a a rush. It's just I I know that it's it's a very stressful patient for most people, but I I love it because I've had so much of it in my experience at that hospital that I was in. That it's like this is where I I I'm ready. I I know that I can think clearly. I know that there's this, a set you know trial triad of death. It's always on my mind, and I know exactly what I need to do to mitigate that from happening. So and neuro. Like neurotrauma, I I enjoy. I, it's like sad. say I enjoy neurotrauma, but I, there's just certain aspects of like neuro and trauma that I I enjoy the the processes that go into caring for a patient like that.
1: What's the term do you guys use for the helicopter? Is it just a helicopter? Do you guys call it a bird? Is there like a slang term for it?
0: Um, rotor. We call it um or rotor heli. I mean, some people call it the bird. I I don't call it the bird because. I don't know. I like, I just call it rotor wing and then fixed wing. Cause, um, we, since we have both aircraft.
1: So like in the rotor wing, I'm curious on what is the workspace? So regular hospital, anybody that's listening, you know, you have your patient's room and then you have the Pixis and a nursing unit. How is the workspace for the rotor? Are you at the, the front of the head? Are you able to move around? What does that look like?
0: So traditionally, um, you know, you have your patient. So, I'm in two different rotor wing aircraft. So I fly in one that it's an EC-135 and it's big. It's got a lot of space. And the patient is kind of equally, there's still someone at the airway, but we have enough room where we can move around and help this patient. And then the other aircraft that I'm in is an A-star and we're packed into this aircraft like sardines. And the person at the airway is pretty much sitting on this patient's head. And if I want to get over to the patient, I can't, I really can't. Um, so depending on the aircraft, normally, like traditionally the, the paramedic will be the one at the airway or the RT will be the one at the airway. And then the nurse is on the other side where they have, um, disposal of like the drugs. Um, you have your monitor, your vent more accessible. Um, but in reality, we're, we're all able to reach those things. It's just easier for the nurse if they're not at the airway seat to, draw up the drugs, show the partner, okay, we'll give it. And so um, it's just, it depends on which aircraft you're in. I, it took me a while to get used to the process of where to set things. Cause once you're in there with the patient, there's really, if you need something that you haven't gotten out beforehand, it's, you're gonna, you're gonna struggle to get something out. Like we had a patient one time where I was like, we're getting the aircraft. I was like, okay, wait let's grab the hypertonic saline just in case because I know for a fact once we're all packed in here there's no way that we're going to be able to reach it because you're just you're packed in so much and the bags the bags are normally stored on the patient cot well when a patient's there those bags are going at your feet they're getting strapped down they're they're right up next to you getting strapped down you're you're bunched in there um the plane is different you know the plane we have a lot of room and the bigger aircraft you know you're not as squished in but it's still you got to prepare you got to think beforehand like what will i most likely need access to i want to make sure that that is in arm's reach because if it's not in arm's reach by the time we're in the air it might as well not even be here so a lot of a lot of thinking ahead thinking what might i need um, goes into play when you're taking a flight
2: and Madison I gotta ask this question what's like the most intense case you've been in or one that you really really remember well
0: um gosh uh I I had so I used to fly in the midwest and so there were a lot of you know summers in the midwest are really hot really humid and people in the midwest you know, they live in very rural, a lot of farm folk, you know, we got, and I worked in an area where we were surrounded by a ton of farms and a lot of just typical, your typical farmers, tough guys who just, they, they, they're they okay. Even if their leg is, you know, they even if they open, they have open fracture, you know, they don't, they'll walk it off. They're all really tough out there. But um, so flying out there, I saw, I saw of really cool stuff. Um, One specifically, we had someone who pretty much they had <laughs> they had been witnessed mowing their lawn and and collapsed while mowing their lawn. The the ambulance was driving by at the time and watched this person collapse. Um they were coating them in on the lawn um, in like 104 degree weather. Uh they ended up having they're having a STEMI but um the fact that this patient and it was in a really rural area and the fact that an ambulance happened to be going by was amazing because the odds of that in this town are like slim to none they saw it they called us right away we got on scene they got rosk we kept him alive long enough because he he was trying to go back into to vtac and we had a 30 minute flight it was so hot that day and in the aircraft, it's it's like a sauna in there. And especially when you're trying to do a ton of things for a patient in a short amount of time, you're, you're drenched in sweat. And so my partner and I are just, we're working hard to make sure that we don't let this guy go back into a fatal rhythm. And cause it, if you start, if you start coding in the aircraft, you have to land, you can't keep flying because we don't have enough room to really safely code a patient. So you have to go to the closest hospital. So we would have turned around and gone back to the small town that we are in that doesn't have a cath lab. So we're trying our best to keep this patient alive. And and just this partner of mine, she and I, we worked so well together. And so I think that aspect of it made it such a memorable flight because we got this patient tube. We got them on the ventilator. We, we got them to the hospital and we landed on the helipad. And at that point, and this is the hospital that I worked at. And so I knew everyone in the ER. And so we notified them ahead of time, hey, we need help in the pad because this patient we're struggling to keep them alive right now. And so all my, some of my favorite doctors and nurses from an, the ER that I worked in came up, and met us up there. And we all worked together to get this patient down to the ER. And they went pretty much straight to the cath lab. And a week later, not even a week later, it was like two days later, we got a, a call from the, the nurse that was taking care of him in the hospital. And he woke up and he was like, last thing I remember, I was mowing my lawn and now I'm here. So he was perfectly fine. And, and so that just, those are the, the calls that like mean the most to me where you cause a lot of them, like they're crazy calls, but they don't have great outcomes. And so those calls that could have gone so much worse where this, this guy could have been on the lawn and, and died, then and no one would have found him for hours. You know, the fact that everything worked out so perfectly and he lived and he woke up and his first words were, I don't, why aren't I mowing my lawn? I love that. I love that for him. And, So my partner and I got to, we like, we were so pumped to hear that because it was, it was one of those calls where we, we were so miserable. We were so sweaty, but we, it didn't affect us at all. Like we just, the way that we worked together was awesome. And so that was huge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's working at ISU. That's, you always get like a a good feeling when somebody makes it because just because the. The expectation of you making it through, like especially a cold situation, is, is very minimal. So it's like you remember yeah. those those really well because a lot of times people, people pass and they don't make it or they get a, a brain injury where you, they lose oxygen and then they're never the, the same ever again and they yeah. never wake up. So it's like those are always really good to see because you actually feel like what you're doing is actually paying off. Sometimes working with like older patients in the ICU, you're just like, means to an to an end in a sense. But when you actually see people recover, it's just like, okay, damn, like this is how, how it's supposed to be. It's how it's supposed to supposed to feel. So I w- wanna follow up. What's the craziest trauma you've you've seen?
0: Um as far so as far as in the helicopter, I haven't had like I personally haven't had a really crazy one. Um, you know, the people I worked with have had well I guess I don't know it's hard like I've had like crazy ones but the craziest ones I've seen were when I was working in the ER still because I saw so many then and so um nothing that I've done flying compares to what I saw in the four years that I did like, in the ER um but so I guess I, I'd rather tell the one that was in the ER because this one was impressive um pretty much someone was ejected uh, at a high rate of speed and they and, and we would have gotten called to fly them my helicopter would have but they were in town but anyways they were ejected without their legs their legs stayed in the car and the rest of their body got ejected um but they lived they lived it was a uh, re- below b- bilateral below the knee amputations traumatic amputations and um the fact that they they first off they weren't even tubed when they came in um they had bilateral tourniquets and and They were in a lot of pain, so we tubed them right away. Um, But they lived um, and went up to the OR fairly quickly. But, like, 30 minutes later, we're cleaning up the trauma bay, and the fire department shows up. They're like, I have these legs. Do you want them? (laughs) But they had socks and shoes on. I mean, it it was just – it's insane what trauma can do, like, that type of force. And drunk driving, so um, word to everyone, don't drink and drive because – like, and don't get in the car with someone who's drinking that that person wasn't even the driver and they weren't even intoxicated the driver was and now their life is forever changed and i can't imagine the force that it took to amputate two legs with such a, i mean it was crazy and i saw pictures afterwards um when they took the legs out and they were sitting right there in the passenger seat
2: yeah i'm trying to figure out how, how that would happen like like how, how does was it a seatbelt that held the legs in place and like the rest of the body went forward? Like, I can't even think of that, like how an impact would do that without like cutting it with a saw.
0: Right, I yeah. Because if they got ejected, like wouldn't they have had, they probably weren't restrained. I don't know. I There's always, and I, I, whenever I would get patients like that, I'm like, I want to learn more about why this happened. How did this happen? But you get so busy, you just it becomes a, a thing of the past because you have another... Trauma right after that, but yeah, I never learned the details, the mechanism of all that. But I know they're at a very high rate of speed. They hit a pole.
1: I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad he survived. So, so switching gears a little bit before we talk about other things, and anybody that's interested in flight nursing, what are the requirements, or education, or ways, or the experience that you need to get into flight nursing?
0: Um. Yeah. So. Pretty much the, the majority of flight jobs require a minimum of three years um in an er or icu setting or the combination of the two and they look for specifically you have experience in a higher acuity icu like in a bigger hospital or a higher acuity er in a bigger hospital um three years are normally the minimum uh and that's what i i, I had the minimum for years and uh a high acuity ER but on top of that like that's the minimum for everyone so you have to do something to set yourself apart so in those three years I got as many certifications as I could under my belt because that makes a huge difference and they're required as well when you get into most flight jobs that either require your CCRN or CEN um and your CFRN once you're working in the flight setting so I got my CEN and my CFRN um I did all the basic, the PALS, ACLS, TNCC, uh, uh, PHTLS, pretty much any certification I could, I got done. And that's, that's what you got to do to set yourself apart and join, join committees, join different, um, committees at your hospital and join, uh, like the, what is it? The ENA, the emergency nurses association, you know, there's all those different associations and, and society nursing societies that you can join and be a part of their newsletters, get their newsletters and um, join those, you know, being a part of those things and showing that you have chosen to take steps to learn more about your respected field. it, it That shows a lot of your, your desire and your drive to be a good nurse and, and be a good flight nurse. And so you know, you gotta, you gotta take those extra steps to set yourself apart when it comes to applying for these jobs. Cause the minimum requirements are the minimum. So I, and I knew that when I started off. And so I, I pretty much, I made a list of uh, uh, every, every month I wanted to get different certification. And so I did that for like two years, the first two years or over the course of the years that I was not a flight nurse, I pretty much always had something that I was working on, whether it was taking a class, getting a certification, going to a a seminar about trauma or pediatrics, you know, I wanted to show that I'm still learning something. I'm never, I'm never not learning. I always want to be adding to my knowledge.
1: So. And as far as like the market is very competitive to become a flight nurse, I know, for example, firefighters that get the job in their unit or in their engine, they stay there for a while because that's what usually firefighters do. As far as like flight nursing, once you get your position, is it very long-term for flight nurse to stay there? And it becomes very hard to get another position.
0: Yeah. um, Well, as far as it's very competitive, yes, to get into it. Um, And I actually, when I first applied uh, for my first flight nursing job, I didn't even tell my husband that I applied because I was like, well, I only have the minimum requirements. I'm probably not going to get the job or even an interview, but I want to ask them what I can do. I'm to get on their radar. Well, I got an interview. I told my husband, well, I, I got an interview for a flight job. He's like, what? I didn't know you applied. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm probably not going to get it because I have the minimum requirements. Because they also, during the interview process, you have to take a test and you do a skills test out before you even get to the interview process. And so I was like, I'm just going to see what this is like, get a feel for it. And then I got offered the job when I was in the gym. They called me, and I sort of I broke down crying in the gym because I didn't expect at all to get this job or even an interview. And so that that's how how out of reach it felt for me. And so I, I was elated to get that job. And then my husband, because uh, I was I was living in an area that I never planned on staying for the rest of my life my husband and I were trying to move back towards my hometown and of course like a couple months into me flying he got a job back towards my home and so I was like oh I'm leaving my flight nursing job that I worked so hard for but I didn't because I actually got to transfer to another base in the state that I'm living now because they were within the same um, like sister company so that was amazing because I was like, great. Um, it's going to take so long to get my name out there again, because it's, it's just, it's very competitive and jobs don't open up a ton. Uh, so I was really lucky to get to transfer. Um, but yeah, most people don't, they don't leave very frequently. So yeah, jobs don't open up a lot. And when they do, we get a lot of applicants and like I said, they have to go through a, a, paper test and then a skills test out and then the interview. So it's a pretty extensive process. And I mean, a company will go months, if not like a year without hiring someone. If they don't, they're not going to just hire someone because they're desperate. They, they need to make sure that they meet the requirements um, for the job. So my current place of work, we've gone the past six months needing a nurse and finally hired one. So it is competitive. But also, I don't think a lot of people realize because the the job description doesn't tell you like, you need to display that you have a good understanding of pre hospital care, your test out is going to be based on pretty much pre hospital care. So knowing that you need to come into it with a good solid background when it comes to your like you need to know acls like the back of your hand you need to know what the trauma nursing process like tncc phtls you need to know that those processes like the back of your hand and you need to be comfortable to act on those scenarios when they test you out like like it's nothing and so um for anyone who wants to go into that field get get comfortable those processes you know practice scenarios at home um and and talk to your, your local paramedic. You know, my husband was a great resource because he put me through scenarios that he had on calls. If it weren't for him and it weren't for me knowing paramedics, I really would have never got a great grasp on what these processes look like. Because in the ER, we have our ER processes and they're totally different than being the sole critical care provider on scene that you are in the, in like the paramedic setting and then in the flight setting your, your two critical care providers coming in and taking over and you need to be comfortable with being the one in charge. And those are the skills that as nurses, we aren't really given those skills. You know, we're given those skills to be autonomous in our respected setting in the ER or ICU. But when it comes to like showing up on the side of a highway and knowing where to start and what information to get, and also how to be quick about it all, we're not really prepared for that unless we seek those opportunities to prepare ourselves for it. So
1: and then as far as like the flight programs, are they independent of the hospital? So does a hospital system own these programs or is it more company-based and the hospital brings a company on to manage the flight program?
0: It's a mix. My, my program right now, we are affiliated with a hospital, uh, but that's because we, our hospital needs a, a transport provider for neonatal patients. Um, because of how rural they are. And so they are affiliated with us so that we can provide um, neonatal care and transport neonates to um, a hospital on the other side of the state. Um, Children's hospital, you know, they normally, a children's hospital normally has their affiliated transport um, crew. Uh, So it's just kind of, it's hospital dependent. um, But my company is still related to a sister company that that has independent bases that aren't affiliated with hospitals. Uh, so it's just kind of dependent on the hospital's needs, I guess.
2: And how does the, the onboarding and education uh, process look? Is it, for example, you're flying with some, with another nurse for three months before you're flying solo. Um, once you get hired, how much time do you have and how much education do they, they provide before you're actually just doing it on your own?
0: So my first job that I had, um, I, first off, you go to, before you even get on the helicopter and take patients, you go to whatever, uh, wherever the headquarters is for your company, and they put you through like a one week long orientation where you're in class all day, um, doing, learning about aviation and safety. That's, that's a big chunk of it. Um, You get trained on night vision goggles. And then after you get all the aviation side of things done and the safety side of things done you move into um, learning about, they, they pretty much review all of the critical care skills that our protocols cover. So uh, it's a lot in a, in a short amount of time. And so you do all that and then you'll get in a helicopter, do your NVG training, you'll fly around. And after that, normally you'll go home to your base. And then as a nurse, you get paired with a paramedic at, that, at my previous job, since we didn't have RTs. Um, my current job, when I got onboarded, I was with either a medic or an RT. Um, and it's, it's dependent on the person's background, how long you're on orientation, whether it's like for, um, six flights or six weeks, it just kind of varies on your experience. So my first job, it was, I think I had to get like, I had to get so many patient flights over the course of so many weeks, and if I didn't meet that, then I would still fly with a preceptor. But I, my preceptor was my partner, um, and and so I, my orientation process was strange. We just kind of like, I was on orientation until I wasn't with him, because uh, it wasn't like I was going on my own, because since he was my partner. But here, at my current job, I had to get so many flights with my preceptor before I could pick up shifts with people who weren't preceptors. So I got 15 flights over the course of two weeks. And um, so, and normally it was like, you'd be in orientation for three weeks. Well, since I hit so many flights in a short amount of time, they're just like, okay, you can go. Cause I had met the requirements and my preceptor I was like, she's fine. She's good to go. So person to person
2: varies. And then you mentioned you had some aviation education. Then for example, worst case scenario, um, something happens to the pilot, do you know how to fly like a helicopter or airplane or know at least what buttons to press <laughs> in case something happens?
0: I know what buttons to press to keep us on autopilot and keep us stabilized. Um, they they do give you, uh, in the previous aircraft that I was in, they did give us a course on how, it was a, a video, like a 10 minute video on how to land the helicopter. <laughs> and it was specific to that helicopter. Because in that company that I was in, we actually had an incident where the pilot was incapacitated with uh, the crew and the patient on board. He was having a stroke while flying that the crew had realized that he was he was having um, aphasia and they looked at him and noted that he had facial droop. And so they're calling a mayday and. They're trying to talk them through pretty much how to, how to possibly land it, but they, had, they never got to that point because it's, it's a pretty interesting video. You can look it up. It, it's, it was um, an Airyvac Vac case, um, but the story is crazy. Essentially, they're almost out of fuel and then the pilot was like out of nowhere, land there? And they said, okay, yep. And he actually landed the helicopter in a field while stroking out but after that situation they did kind of prepare us for okay this might happen so if this does happen here's a crash course on how to land a helicopter i don't know if i could actually do that um but i know how to stabilize it put an autopilot and pray
2: (laughs) yeah that's intense because it's like one of my fears always when i'm flying is like what if something happens to the pilot like Am I gonna be able to figure out how to do this? Am I gonna have like put on a headset and communicate? Like, am I landing this bad boy, or what's gonna happen? Because you know it's very rare, but if it happens, it's like it's it's crazy feeling because you're just you're just out of like you just really have no idea what to do. You can't. It's hard to right? figure out on the spot.
0: There's so many buttons in there, and it's like even if they were to tell me like press this button, put turn this on, I would. It took me 10 minutes just to find the button that they're talking about. Because these helicopters are just insane. Um, I feel like you can land a plane. Because have you heard about that guy um, in Seattle? He like stole a plane a couple of years back, Rich Bebo. And he, he stole a plane and he was flying it around for a few hours. And he's like, oh, I, watched, I played a video game once. This isn't too hard. So, you know, since that guy was able to fly a plane, maybe I'd be able to fly a plane, but you don't really hear about people stealing helicopters because they're pretty, pretty intricate machines.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. And then if you're a if you're a flight nurse, do you get to pick up patient population or it's like you're a flight nurse, you're going to automatically have to know how to work with children, middle age adults, older adults, or do you have like a say in all that or just... As emergency comes, it just comes. You gotta be prepared for everything.
0: Pretty much that. I mean, we we have to be prepared for everything. In my current company, uh, my previous, you know, there's other companies where they don't have the capabilities to fly neonates. So we don't. We don't. They don't have an isolate. We have an isolate in one of our two helicopters, and we have the ability to put an isolate in our airplanes. Um, we also have the ability to fly balloon pump patients. <laughs> Other programs don't have that ability to fly balloon pump patients um, or they don't have the ability to fit an isolate in their helicopter. so uh, but mine that I'm currently in we we take it all. There's nothing really that we there's nothing that we don't take. if it, if they need our help, we're there. Um, and if we've never worked with something before, we're gonna figure it out with the the doctors at the bedside. so that's that's something I love about this company is that there's really. It, it, it could be anything. You never know what your your call is going to get. It could be something that you've seen a million times, or you've never seen or never heard of. So it's and you're going to take it. So yeah. pretty cool.
1: Just listen to this interview with you and everything, it seems like it takes a lot of autonomy and confidence to be in a position that you are. And a lot of new grad nurses that listen to the podcast or message us, they always struggle with confidence early on in their nursing career. So. Being in a current, you know, specialty that you have with all your experience, what are some tips you could give to new grad nurses or nurses in general that are struggling with confidence and building confidence?
0: I will be the first to say that I struggled with confidence so much because I couldn't even get into nursing school in the first place, but I never lost the the hunger for my dream job, which is flying. And so don't don't ever lose that that motivation. I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to find motivation when you hit dead ends and you feel like nothing's going your way. Like I've been there and I I let all of those failures that I ran into just just serve as fuel to motivate me more to to learn more on my own time and study more on my own time. You know, go go above and beyond the requirements when it comes to school, when it comes to jobs you know, do everything that you can to stand out, not not for others, do it for yourself, because over time, those failures, they're going to motivate you to being a better clinician, being a better nurse. And over time, you realize, wow, I'm confident in myself because I've done a lot of extra work to get to this point. And you and you I don't know, there's no there's never really a point where I. I still struggle with confidence. You know, we, we always will struggle with confidence. I I guess that's what keeps us motivated to continuing to push ourselves and learn. If you, if you are at a point where you're 100% confident and you feel like you know it all, then you're, that's not where you want to be. Like you want to be in a position where you know that you're not the smartest in the room, where you know that there's things you have to learn because you should always be seeking opportunities every day to learn more. And so that's kind of where I've been at. I know that I'm especially at my current job I'm the youngest one on in my program and that is hard and it just it it's fueled me and it's encouraged me to just be true to myself be confident in myself and when I don't feel confident in something I'm gonna seek help like there's people in your in my Hospital that I worked in. There's people in the, my company that I fly for now that I look up to, I admire, and so I will reach out to them and I'll ask them, hey, let's let, can we sit down and talk about this? I I want to know like your thoughts on on this process. I want to I want to learn more about your experience in this. So just never stop learning, and at some point you'll you'll feel you you'll enjoy the autonomy. That's where I'm at. I enjoy the autonomy. I know that I. I'm not the smartest in the room and I'm totally okay with that. I love that because I have plenty of people around me every day that I get to learn more from. And so it's just a constant learning process and just acknowledge that. Don't don't aim to be the best at something, aim to be the lifelong learner and enjoy autonomy. I, I enjoy being independent because I've worked so hard to to learn new things every day, every year and those things add up. And at some point you're like, I know how to deal with this and I feel good about, about taking care of this patient because I've done this before and it's had a good outcome. So I don't care if, if I, the youngest one in this company, I've done this before and I've done it right. And I might learn something new today. I might do something that I'll, that I should have done differently. Like you're, you're always learning. Just acknowledge that you are always going to be learning something new every day on the job. And, uh, it becomes fun. So I don't know. I, and that's a huge topic for me. Cause ah, I was, I struggled. I don't know how many times I was like, I don't know why I'm trying to do this. Like I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do this. I don't have, like, I didn't have the 4.0 GPA. I, I struggled at school. I, I was in school and I was, I was, had zero confidence in just my ability to do a math test like I I am the queen of no confidence when it came to my my education but I I didn't give up that's the thing just don't give up
2: yeah yeah it's, it's really good advice you know just to be a lifelong learner and like you said you don't have to be the smartest person in the, in the room it's not your job and and you shouldn't think that you're the smartest person in your room because then you're putting a whole lot of pressure on, on yourself if you don't know something and if you think you're not the smartest exactly. you know that takes a lot of pressure off and it doesn't make you seem incompetent it's not something that you don't, don't know something it doesn't make you uh, any less of a A person or any less intelligent. It's just you don't have to be a smart person in the room. You just have to have to understand that what you know, you know through experience, through through knowledge, through books, through whatever you've you've been through. And other people Mm -hmm. might not say that they might know more than you. it's just they know they know different aspects, different things because of their own experience.
0: Yeah, My, my my favorite thing quote is get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's that leads to opportunities to learn new things and speak up when you feel uncomfortable because otherwise you're you're missing out on an opportunity to learn from someone else around you or learn something new from others. And we, the nice thing about flying is after every chart that we submit, someone uh, does a peer review on it and they give you feedback. First off, they make sure that you uh, followed the protocols properly, you did all your dosages properly, but they also give you feedback and kind of like what they would have done differently, maybe Um, what they are like, what they're like, oh, I'm proud that you did this. I wouldn't have thought about that. Awesome job. You know, we get, we get a peer review process and that's always really awesome because every call, I mean, if you and your partner do your patient care, you send the patient off, you know, it would suck if no one gave you feedback on your performance, because how do you know if you could have done something differently? So that's a nice aspect of flying is the, the, career I mean itself they acknowledge like we are always learning and we all come from different backgrounds and we can all learn from each other and so it's a really supportive environment honestly and that it's helped a lot it, at first it seems really intimidating like thinking about like flight nursing being a flight medic it seems like such an intimidating field but it is it's full of support and encouragement and everyone is just such a big family I mean we're not a team we're a family and so um if you ever see you you know your your local flight nurse, bringing in a patient, the ER, talk to us. Like we love, I I love talking to especially students. Like, God, I loved, I loved when I was in the ER and I got a precept because I, I was one of those students when I started off in my career, or when I started off in nursing school, I felt like my, my preceptors didn't want me there. I felt like all they wanted me to do was do vitals for them. And if I asked questions, they, I was a nuisance. And so I made a point of, I am never going to be that nurse who makes, who makes someone, who's learning feel like they're a nuisance for wanting to learn. And so I, I love advocating for students. I love advocating for new nurses and I love, I love giving just my, my stories and experiences because I've been there and it sucks sometimes, but there's, it's not the end of the road. When someone, when someone tells you no, or when someone tells you I don't have time for you go do vitals that that's not the end of the
2: road. So yeah, right. And yeah, we have a very similar mindset to yours. You know, we we always say get comfortable with the uncomfortable because that's just how how life is. If you're if you're comfortable, you know, someone someone's going on. You know, there's something that, that you're not you're not not seeing. But but I'm curious since you've worked both trauma intensive care and then the ER, did you struggle transitioning to being a flight nurse? Was there anything that you had to uh, really hone in on to to improve on or anything that you, that you struggled with? Um, I
0: i I think that the scene call aspect I, I still I still struggle with that. I mean, being nurses and being used to the hospital, being in, used to a controlled setting, it's still it's not something that I'm ever gonna really feel like as comfortable with when it comes to showing up on a scene call because i i just I feel so much more comfortable with. Showing up to an ICU or an ER and taking a really critical patient because that's just you know I have all the resources there and I can if I need meds if I, if I feel like my patient that I'm picking up I'll, can you bowl some propofol before I switch into my meds I can do that like I I can utilize the team that's there on scene I don't have any of that and so it's still one of those things that I struggle with um, when it comes to just being okay with not having a ton at your disposal. And moving fast, Um, you know, medics are good at showing up on scene, loading, and going. As nurses, we we see a critical trauma patient or a critical like stroke, any any scene call patient, a stroke, a STEMI, a trauma. We we see this patient. We know like, oh, I can do this, this, and this, and this right now. Like, I want to get this med started. You don't have time for that. Like, you need to learn to prioritize the things because the thing that these patients need are are a higher level of care in as quick of a amount of time as possible. So finding that that happy medium of providing critical care that is the priority and moving with purpose, getting getting that that dance but it's just like it's a dance I like to call it. you got to just find that perfect mixture and I I'm still working on that because I still show up to a scene and I'm like, oh, I want to do this and this and this and then my medic partners like, no, we don't need to do that right now. <laughs> we can do that in the air if we have time but we need- do these things and go. I'm like, okay, fine, but I want to do these things. So we wanted, we want, we just we think so critically as nurses when when we need to think more. Um, time is of the essence, and I'm I'm am finally getting the hang of putting putting the critical care things in my back pocket and waiting till we're, we're in the air and going because I do always think about like, oh, this person has an open fracture. I want to get some antibiotics started. I w-. no, we don't have time for that. <laughs>
1: That's like being a nurse, be a medic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like the whole thing between the ICU and the ER is like we always get upset in the ICU and things aren't done. But again, in the ER, it's almost the same setting like the ground. You're loading and going, and we're stabilizing the patient. And also, I loved how you mentioned the whole confidence thing because it is almost like a dance where you have to be humble to ask questions because if you're one of those nurses that are fully confident, you don't ask questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: or you don't want to ask questions where you want to always figure things out yourself. You're going to create a lot of shame and guilt within yourself because you're always trying to figure that out. And that only is going to lower your self esteem and going to do the opposite, which is to lower your confidence.
0: And you have to recognize that if you're trying to put on this front of like, I know what I'm doing when, when you're, when you might not, you're, you're not prioritizing the patient, you know, you're putting the patient at risk when you're not able to admit your, places that you're not comfortable with you're choosing to prioritize your self-esteem over the patient and that's something that i i think that i i recognized early on because i i I witnessed that and it's frustrating when you see someone choosing their pride over the patient and that's something that i will never i i just i never want to do that i never want to be the nurse that puts the patient at harm just because i want to preserve my my pride like you're better off admitting that you're wrong about something or you're not comfortable with something and benefiting the patient by admitting you're wrong. So we do what we do for the patients, not
1: for our bride. Yeah. 100%. And one last question we'd like to ask all of our guests before we end the show. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why?
0: Hmm. Um. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh... I'm trying to think. Someone in music. I think I'd want to sit down with um, Metallica, just sit down with Metallica and have a cup of coffee with them. I don't know. I, I, I. I want to hear all about, you know, the, what, what life is like being on the road playing music in, in the eighties and yeah, I, and they just seem like cool people, but I really feel like I should have been alive earlier on to enjoy like the, the rock and roll metal early on lifestyle. But uh yeah, I think it'd be cool to get to know them and, and, and chat with them. I don't know. i it's had to be, it'd have to be someone in music. So maybe, maybe Metallica, I don't know.
1: well Madison we just want to acknowledge you for your time here on this episode thank you for getting on your wealth of knowledge in flight nursing so hopefully there's nurses or anybody listening that took some advice or got motivated to become a flight nurse so thank you
0: yeah of course and I I'm hopeful that you know anyone who has any questions about nursing flight nursing about just trying to grow confidence like I'm I Loved chatting about all that because I've been there and um, I love talking about life, nursing, flying, all that. So, thank you guys so much for having me on, it's been
2: awesome. Yeah. And, uh, Madison, uh, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you for any kind of uh, questions regarding flight nursing or just need a confidence booth, boost?
0: Um, so I'm on Instagram and TikTok. Um, my Instagram, it's I'll I'll share it with you guys. Madrose.v.
1: Um, I, I have Yeah.
0: Learned, um... I changed it recently because I got married recently. So I'm like, oh I just changed it recently. And then uh my TikTok is I think it's Madison. Let me see. I just started posting more on my TikTok about like flying and, and lifting. I am a competitive power lifter, so I post kind of just about my my life in the mixture of lifting and flight nursing. But um Rose G that's my TikTok. So, um, you can find me there and I I like posting, I post videos of pretty views from flights and, um, some, some nursing humor on there. So
2: yeah, super cool. Thank you so much.